0: Hello, I'm Vicky Brock. My entrepreneur Agriant guest this week is Tom Adula, founder and CEO of MeTail. And he heroically joins me on a mobile phone because my hotel Wi-Fi failed, whilst people were trying to hoover outside the room and airplanes were flying over. Nevertheless, we battled on and it's a great episode. This is Tom's fifth startup. He employs a hundred people in London and Cambridge and Metel has raised more than $20 million in strategic investment. I have the privilege of working with Tom and his team, and I wanted to share some of the excellent management practices I have seen in action there. So welcome, Tom. Two questions this week. So the first question I've been sitting on for a while, and it was only when I spent the day with your team yesterday did I realise how perfect you would be to shed some light on this. I've been written to by somebody who is currently based in Edinburgh. They're about to set up a Glasgow office, a big move for them. And they wrote... What is your advice for somebody setting up multi-site for the first time? I want to ensure that communications still flow and that we don't build a system where we're siloing ourselves. So I know that you have direct experience of that with your London and your Cambridge offices. So I'm hoping that we can talk about that. And the second question is from somebody who listened to an earlier episode and realized that they too were struggling to get product market fit. They just didn't know that was the name of it. They've written going, I realized that I actually need to keep iterating to get something that's closer to solving a real pain for my customer. Where do I start and how do I keep going through this in a way that doesn't terrify my investors? Which is a really good question, and if you have the answer to that, I'll be really impressed because I don't think I got that one right. But perhaps first, Tom, we could start off with just a quick introduction from you, about a little bit about yourself and how you've evolved as a CEO and entrepreneur over the years that you've been running Metel.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, my name's Tom Mediula, CEO and founder of Meetel. Started as a life as a management consultant, then the internet boom started. I almost felt I was born too late, but I, I managed to join one of the big dot coms of 98, 99, Sportal, worked for commercial director there. It was hugely exciting. Working for a startup was hugely meritocratic, it was dynamic. And I think from that moment, it was sort of never looked back for me. So I've, I've worked in sort of five startups through my career, did that for a while, and managed a friend's band. Actually, that's probably one of the things that taught me the most, I think, around business. I really looked at that as a a real model for how I would run a business. We we sat down together as a band. We looked at what were going to be our goals and thinking about it as a product.
0: Right. As opposed to kind of a bunch of people going out and making music. You were like treated as a product from the start.
1: Yeah, exactly. So their goal was to try and win a Mercury Music Prize. So it was like, okay, what are we going to do to get there? Who who do we need to get our music in front of? What do we need to do in terms of getting the music out there, marketing, promotion, all of those good things? And I, I didn't know any, anything about the music industry, but I sort of learned very quickly that, as with all industries, it gets very small um, once you get started. And I think when you're focused... Know what you're trying to achieve, it's amazing how quickly you can meet the right people. So, that was a really interesting exercise. It taught me a lot about all of the sides of business that I hadn't been exposed to as a strategy and commercial and finance guy, and it was a lot of fun. So, I did that for a while, and that was in the background, I think, of my life for about seven years. I uh, went and worked for Warner Brothers. Um, that was the first time working for a big blue chip, uh, and I went there because I love film. But I soon realised that it's not the industry that is important, but what you're doing. Um, and that was intensely, intensely boring and dull. And after that, I sort of had a bit of a sort of crisis of confidence, if you like, about where my career was going. So I'd always been a strategy guy. Had I taken myself too niche? So I spent a bit of time talking to some people who'd done MBAs, and they said, "No, don't be silly." Don't want to do that you've, you've actually covered uh, most part of the <laughs> business one of them said come and work for me instead so I joined her at a company called Inspired Gaming Group which was in the uh, casino, bingo, big songs, betting space gambling industry um, not something my mother was very proud of or myself <laughs> really um, but I, I learned a huge amount that was where I finally learned about products how to to build stuff and how to make it work and i took a casino division from scratch to putting a product into the field which was broken day one like intensely broken tense pressure i was doing 100 hour weeks at the beginning it was really tough i learned how to manage people team and that it was that role that then finally gave me the confidence to start my own thing so i knew i didn't want to work in gambling so then it was a case of like trying to find an idea I could get behind and fully commit to.
0: And just out of interest, how long did, yeah, I was going to say, how long did that take? Because that, for me, I, I always find that is the hardest part. Not having ideas, I have a million and one ideas, but having an idea that I'm prepared to spend the next five to 10 years working on, that doesn't come quickly. How'd that work? No,
1: it doesn't. It, it took a year, to be honest. So I had a group of friends and we'd meet um, periodically to sort of brainstorm ideas, and throw ideas around. But, you know, having been a strategy guy, my, my my job was always to say, no, that's a bad idea. So it then to get one that would slip through is is quite hard. So and you realize that it's not just about having an idea, but it's having an idea that you can make happen. Yeah. And uh, an idea that you can make happen in a way which would both excite you and match up against your sort of ambitions and expectations of what you so so getting all of that mutual connection is is difficult and i think in the end the idea that stuck for me came about through two things one was my wife my now wife then girlfriend complaining about difficulties and challenges of trying to find clothes that would work and fit from actually the in-store experience you know taking four items in getting all hot bothered and then if it doesn't work just feeling demoralized and then to go home, and, and the fact that online had not improved that situation—it was not a better experience for finding stuff that was suitable and would fit—and that sort of stuff in my mind, I nearly joined a company called Boo.com back in '98, um, which blue skies sort of every idea in fashion. Um, so I, I was—I thought about you know what had happened, why wasn't there a solution for online clothing fit, but. I didn't have the other side of the point, which is um, why was I well placed to mm-hmm. attack that problem? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So,
0: as, a, as, a ta- a as somebody point, who attacked not. a similar problem, I, I, I hear what you're saying in a big way there. Yeah.
1: So, so that then came from I was in the process of trying to create the world's first live blackjack background game that uh, inspired, and I ended up. Googling whilst I was in a hotel room in Hong Kong, leading expert computer vision, because I wanted to use cameras to recognize cars as their big girl. And a professor at Cambridge popped up first, and I cold-called him from my hotel room. I hadn't even checked what time of day it was, and I managed to get through first time to him. And uh, I said I wanted to build a system. He said, yeah, no problem, come visit me. So I then did when I got back to the UK. And the thing that sort of stuck in my mind, I ended up um, commissioning one of his ex PhD students to actually build out the system. But he showed me all of his research work. And one of the key bits of research which was fascinating to me was going from photos of Anthony Gormley's statues to 3D accurate representations. So that ability to do computer vision to basically create 3D models was interesting. And then I went on holiday to Vietnam with my girlfriend and we had some stuff tailor-made in Hoi An. And it was a case of, well, instead of going halfway around the world to get stuff that would work, maybe this computer vision-based solution could be the way in which to solve that problem. And then after working with one of the PhD students on that Black Jack Bacharach game, it really sort of opened my eyes up to the potential for computer vision, and that's where I suddenly felt that this technology, the closeness to Cambridge, the world-class leading expertise there. Um, and then in doing more investigation, all of the trends going in the right way led me to believe that actually I was well placed. And I, if I could harness that technology and potentially get that experienced PhD student involved, we could be well placed to actually solve that problem. So mm-hmm. that's what then excited me. It was like the problem and the challenge and the access to potential technology to put together and solve it in a different way and in a way which could deliver a potential global consumer impacting
0: solution. And so almost conceptually from the beginning you were a two-site business perhaps from the start because the Cambridge contingent seems like it was so important to the core of what you did.
1: Yeah ex- exactly. So yeah so in this case Duncan was was based up in Cambridge and I was down in London and I felt that that technology was key I mean so much so that the friends I was brainstorming ideas with we called called ourselves the Monday night club I decided that I wasn't going to take this idea forward with them being part of it but that I really need to have that access to to talent in Cambridge so yeah right from the get-go it was a case of me traveling up and down to Cambridge and the concept or problem of two sites was there from the beginning I mean I lived in London I also felt that the fashion world was in London and the sort of talent around products and fashion that I needed was in London. Mm-hmm. So there was always this tension and it, was, and it came up continuously as to whether we were going to be a single site. And in my mind, I sort of felt, well, if I couldn't make London-Cambridge work, then how could I have aspirations of being a global business eventually? So, you know, this could be a test case for me of seeing whether I could make communication flow and a two-site office work harmoniously so that we could do so in the long run. And it was a case of like, as we were sort of trying to get tech talent, we managed to sort of find a rich scene of, of great people up in Cambridge, hugely talented, definitely sort of more stable and loyal, I think, potentially than what we could get down in London. And it, it felt like I needed that connection. And we from the early days, um, started to co-fund a PhD student. we maintained an ongoing relationship with the professor. So I, I, I felt we needed that connection. That mm-hmm. But things were definitely difficult, because especially as we had tech there, we had sort of product operations, business development down in London. That's not the sort of split that you naturally hear from things like Lean Startup and so on, where it always talks about having your product teams co-located yep. together, working together, fast iterating things. And I think for me, I interestingly hadn't been brought up that way in terms of different companies I'd worked at. In every business I'd worked at and they were startups, almost universally the developers sat on a different floor and it was a case of the dev managers trying to prevent access to developers from yeah. anything else. So at Inspired, I remember one occasion literally crawling on hands and knees between the desks on the dev floor trying not to be seen by the engineering manager um, (laughs) to try and get a favor done by one of the developers because I didn't have I hadn't been given that resource I really needed just one little thing done.
0: So, oh yeah i just worked in an agency where they literally had a traffic controller and you weren't allowed onto the floor with the creatives in any way shape or form until you'd been through traffic and been given a slot it's like way way to go to collaborate yeah
1: so therefore it was sort of like for me it was like well it's ideal to sit together sure but i'd never had that experience anyway even when we were in the same building so i felt you know, I wanted to try and make it work, and I think the the thing that has made it work over time has been who we then managed to hire and who subsequently became our CTO, Jim Downing. So, like, if I didn't have him, as somebody who was able to basically both be a tech leader, but also extremely commercial, business focused, and somebody that I have a great relationship with, and who's all about Forward thinking strategy all about company values and has the same sort of belief structure and vision and mission as I do, it wouldn't work because effectively he runs that office mm-hmm. in some respects and I run London and they have to work together. So if he was running that in a completely different way to me, then we'd have a, a growing chasm. But it hasn't been like that. Where I feel like almost symbiotic and it's worked in a way where. You know, I've have definitely had managers over the years in my leadership team, et cetera, where I feel like I need to have weekly meetings to catch up. Whereas I've never had that with Jim, even though we're in not in the same office. Mm-hmm. So we ask each other things over Slack, phone, email, as and when they arise, and it's worked extremely well. So I probably I've always felt that I talk with him more than I do with people, even in my own office. And he's been a sort of very strong leader in terms of trying to make sure culturally that devs can work in a way that is functional. So, and we've worked together on what are the common things that we need as a culture that work across the offices and therefore what are the things that need to be different. So, for example, Cambridge, it, it almost often feels like the the working floor is, is quiet and then people go into rooms to be noisy and have meetings. Whereas in London, it feels like the working environment can often be noisy, so people are trying to you know, um, brainstorm ideas and, and throw things around, whereas they go into rooms to be quiet.
0: Interesting. It's a very yeah. different
1: style, so um, you know, definitely developers like to work in flow and context switching is really quite Damaging to your ability to do flow. Whereas I certainly almost like manage by walking around the London office, you know, looking to pick up things that I hear and then join dots for
0: people. That's very much my style as well and I think what struck me when I, because I've been at your London office on a Friday afternoon when you have cocktails and Cambridge just comes on stream and joins that, I really felt you had nailed that piece where one office isn't being forgotten and I think that was the challenge when I had when I was managing a, a selection of remote workers rather than two sites. It was it sounds awful, but it was sometimes easy to forget that you hadn't brought somebody into the mix. And it was quite easy to leave people out. And I think you got a very strong sense of identity for both places. But I, I wouldn't like be able to say which one was the your head office because they both, yeah, they both feel really strong in their own ways.
1: Exactly. And I think that was really important from day one was that no office felt like it was second to another other so we wanted like common theme of like decor but we wanted to make sure that both were equally strong and you know we, we've done things like we have company meetings where everyone is together once a month but they rotate from London to Cambridge so we, we move to each office monthly and then we have a summer party in Cambridge because it's it's green there <laughs> um, and we have them the Christmas party in London so again it feels like there's there's balance between the two but we've you know over the years we you know we've had to fight for this and work really hard on it because there have been periods of our history where it hasn't worked um and hence we've had to try and figure out and put together uh, processes and structures to, to to bring the offices together so like we have an always-on Skype TV in both kitchens so if you are going to make a cup of tea you can see Cambridge equivalent doing the same thing so and it is amazing how much that delivers a sense of connectivity rather than as you say the forgotten So because mm-hmm. we do have a couple of remote people and it is so easy when presentations happen. Again, we do you know, Thursday demos and the presentations happen wherever the person is presenting. And again, you see all of the audience in Cambridge sitting down to listen to it. You hear both across, but certainly with the remoters, it's easy to forget to bring them into the uh, mix as well. So you, know, you, you constantly have to work hard. It doesn't happen by accident, and you have to constantly spend time listening to people and and when people do make comments about you know that feeling of us and them you have to work to find ways to, to combat it because because that's yeah. hard so you know how can you bring things together so the, for example the idea of cocktails on a friday that was invented in cambridge and hence we in london you know took that on board Again, bring that sense of it's something which we sort of do together, although it often feels that we create punch and <laughs> actually make real content. <laughs> so,
0: and they definitely have a more impressive range of condiments in Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, I would say that your team meeting—I mean, it was a privilege actually to to be in that meeting yesterday because it really made me understand through a compliment here at you but what a damn good CEO you are and actually how very very good you are at the management of people and it's a conversation I had in an earlier episode where entrepreneurs are often like entrepreneurs and founders they have one set of skills but they can be a little bit casual and dismissive in learning good management practice whereas I, I saw yesterday in the way that that team meeting worked extremely well, broad concept communication down to breakouts at the end where there was group to group doing show and tells. It was obviously very well structured, very well managed. Is that something that has taken a lot of years to refine or has all the previous stuff that you'd done on the strategy side really lent into that format? Uh,
1: I think I think we've had to refine it definitely over the years. I mean, and especially as we've grown. So I think, you know, when you're eight people, everybody knows everything. So things are quite easy. And definitely once we hit 40 and above, things start to break down quite a lot. And also the difficulty was then it felt like giving out tons of information in a meeting rather than getting everybody involved in it. And I think management isn't just about me. I would say that Jim, our CTO has read probably every management book going. So from that perspective, Know, he is our encyclopedia yeah, as to what new techniques we couldn't and, and, and can't do and I think having a team around you who have different skill sets is hugely valuable and stuff that you don't know so I'd say I'm really conceptual Jim is quite concrete so it's like you know when we look at meetings and things that work and don't work we then think about how to break it up and I think demos was quite a key thing where we were like well we need more time to do to get information out in a a more of q and A Q&A type format, and previously we sort of had informa- big information bits in the meeting. But because it's now quite a big meeting, nobody is willing to put their hand up and ask questions. So Q and A doesn't work anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. The company
1: meeting was the way it did when we were smaller. So if you really want to get into a topic, they work a break in the breakouts and demos. The demos are probably my favorite part of it so I was, I was gutted that I had to, to run and leave early yesterday um, and then I think it does flow and it goes a bit up and down so you know sometimes you can have really nice um, topics for people to communicate back into the team and company meetings so and sometimes there just is a lot of content so working out how to streamline that and also how to crowdsource it. So the great thing about the company meetings, and again, the great thing about collaborative software is that you get people to put that all together. In the early days, I was putting all the company meeting structure together, whereas now um, that company meeting came together that day. So you know, the opening sort of framework for the meeting in terms of the agenda was done the day before. Then, it's interesting. There. then all of the different participants just chuck their slides into it that day. And I generally do my slides like an hour
0: before. Which is really good because the one thing you don't want to do is introduce a structure whereby you're spending three weeks out of four preparing for meetings.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> that that kills you as a company as well. Um, interesting.
1: And it's always been really important for me, actually, from the beginning as well, that I want everybody to be able to present and everybody should present. So... Needs to be there in the business so everybody could communicate their work mm-hmm. to everybody else. So we we spend time training people on that. So yeah. We recently had a had an actress come in and spend time with everybody going through the teams in terms of presence and how to communicate. So based on you know thinking about how
0: the mechanics. That's interesting, and it shows. I mean you did the classic uh, welcome the new people celebrate the leaving people did your top down and and it worked really really well but everybody in the course of that, I don't know how long it was, I guess it was about a two-hour meeting, somebody came up and very confidently talked about GDPR, which could be a very dry subject. But I, I said to that, that person afterwards, will you come and come do my GDPR presentations? Because that was really interesting. Everybody really engaged and they did ask important questions. It really shows. So I find it fascinating that that is a result of a hell of a lot of deliberation and work and practice on your part. Because I think often we just sort of regard that as not important work. We've got stuff to do. We've got products to build and things to sell, stuff to get done. And the mechanics of working on things like that are not necessarily viewed as by investors or viewed as externally as appropriate places to see you should be spending their time and yet when i've seen it right like you've done and and with conversations i had with mark mark logan who was at sky scanner you know it's everything the mechanics of the people being able to function is how everything else gets done
1: and it's the only thing that gets you through the difficult times to be honest so um, if you put in the effort your people will then make that extra effort when things go
0: And I suppose that brings it to the the next question, the one about product market fit. And it's interesting that I like the fact that the person said in this in their question when they wrote in, I didn't know it was called that. (laughs) But I know I have the problem. And I went through that exact thing. I sat googling how do I know if I have a product market fit problem? And I found this Mark Andreessen quote that uh, explained it. And I was like, yeah, that's what I have. Oh my God, what do we do? And it's a real shock because you don't expect that to come years into your business. Yet it's perfectly normal that it does. And I obviously was with you and I saw your people and your teams really embracing a minimal viable product approach internally. And you were all talking about 10x 10x improvements could you tell me a little bit about that because I think it's the key thing that the person asking the question about product market fit needs to think about what does it mean to you
1: yeah I mean I think there's a great quote in the book the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz the other side of that
0: yeah I love that book it's It's yeah Yeah. (laughs) And
1: and, and he talks about it's it's not good enough to be two times better than an existing product to get traction. You need to be 10. Only when you are that obviously better than the existing product will you get dynamic traction. And I think that is something which is especially true in an enterprise world. Yeah. in an enterprise world, the person that you're selling to is massively risk averse, in general, If they're, especially if they're a corporate,
0: right? Absolutely. If they get it right, nothing happens. If they get it wrong, they get fired. Exactly,
1: exactly. So it has to be so obviously right that it's a no-brainer for them to make that decision. So, but when when we're talking about ten x, that's basically the concept. You know, how can we deliver something which is so obviously and clearly a home run or or has positive impact that it isn't a question of like, you know, oh, it's a ten percent improvement. How can we do the ten? 10- times improve in each case and if you think there first and then come down to what the increment is so it's it's the inc- increments of improvement that's difficult and especially if you're bringing a new product to market you have to think about that big change that disruptive change and that disruptive change has to be that the next
0: and the frustrating and the difficult thing and why it doesn't happen on day one or year one, or sometimes by year five, you're still going through this. I know I certainly was going through that cycle, is that what, what you regard as the, your core innovation and the exciting bit of your product and your amazing groundbreaking technology isn't the same as the solution. It's not the product that's got to be 10x better or the technology that's got to be 10x better. It's the value in the eyes of of the customers. It's in the eyes of the beholder, not you, and you can't control it It's only once it's out there and that's slow and expensive and it doesn't always work and it's Quite a scary thing, and um, I personally think you know you have you have to break it down into as smaller chunks as of testing as possible. Uh, I kind of broke everything we had down into almost the Lego bricks of the technology. We joined all of our desks up. We did this whole kind of like war room thing, almost of putting all of the bricks of what we had back together in different ways to think how could we look at this to deliver a better solution as opposed to deliver better tech, is that an approach you're taking or are you doing something slightly different?
1: Yeah, so, so we've been trying to think of like, right, okay, there's here's one bit which is our core which delivers some value, but in many respects some people, certainly in the West, which is why actually we, we've been pulled to Asia because they're less risk-averse, plus they're, they're gunning for a fast-growing middle-class market. So this is something else to think about, like a lot of the product market fit is the market side of it. Right? So you've got to mm. really understand the market. Certainly when we were bringing out a product, the credit crisis happened, and we were doing the typical thing that UK investors tell you, which is like grow fast in your own market first. Yeah. But our own market was, you know, clothing sales are going down, up. most uh, UK high street were over leveraged with debt, they had too much real estate. They had legacy systems, legacy people, not no talent in the right areas to focus that growth, and all were just trying to stay alive. So in that situation, all of the market that you're basically pitching to are all focused on cost saving, not growth, and not growth. You know, so so that's like mm. okay, the product we've got isn't a fit for the market we're in. Yep. So where is the market that's going to fit? Our products. So that's an element then, which like you know, thankfully we always wanted to be a global business, but therefore we were pulled to markets where they're focused actually on consumer and growth, which has led us out to India, South Korea, and other places further afield. And then we've that adds more difficulties because you're then trying to understand consumers not based in, which is difficult. But again, thankfully we've got very. Teams so and we have people from a lot of these areas, which gives us a bit of a head start as we uh, try and enter those markets. But I think, still, like we've got our core stream of value where we think our core value is, and then how can we layer on more and more value over and above that product? So, hence, for example, the way that we digitize clothing that's the core, right? You know, basically try on clothes and see how they fit in virtual self. But the way in which we do the digitization of of garments we've established that we can go back up the chain to add more value by using our technology to provide all model imagery for the retailer cheaper than their existing methods so that's like Mm -hmm. oh we can we can supplement the value on that side and then on the other side it's like well the core value really is in the data there's more and more data services that we could potentially offer there too and again that all these back-to-market, all new big global retailers around the world are really focused on data and metrics, so it's like, okay, our product needs to fit with customer who's very data-focused, mm-hmm. who has the capability of being able to take the data we provide and do something with it. Um, they have to have volume, they have to have uh, a real metric focused in terms of how they they push product through and how they convert and get stuff done and not be so you know a traditional retailer might say, well, I only want to photograph things in this way and I don't want my customers to see themselves in, in my clothes. So it's like, well, they're never going to be an early adopter yeah. or probably even a last adopter. So it's like how how does our product match against the type of people who are going to use it? And I think the way in terms of that product market fit again, you have to think as you talked about in terms of like, you don't naturally think that late in your business you're still having that question, asking that question, but you are because of you know there's that great book Crossing the Chasm. Yeah. You start with earlier doctors who like, uh, yeah, we want to do new stuff, do great things, and we're innovative like you, and then you want to get to later adopters, who are like still going, you know, beating the drum, but then there's this huge gap to get to the mass, and it's it's layering on the values. Of your product and and the value you drive, which is supremely hard and difficult to then make that leap over into basically mass adoption.
0: Absolutely, and I urge people read "Crossing the Chasm." It's an old book, but my goodness, I mean, for me, uh, it was uh, we were living that. I'm very mindful of your time, Tom. But but one of the, the the key things I think that you when you're going through this whole process is is whether you have got strategic long-sighted investors or not. I certainly got pressure when I realized I had these challenges of some attitudes being expressed to me, which were, you know, you don't have time to innovate, stop innovating and getting distracted by shiny things and just sell the stuff you've already built, which fails to grasp the problem. Has strategic or longer view money been, do you feel you have that and has that if so, has that helped?
1: Yeah, that's critical. Like, I think the approach to investing in the UK doesn't fit the world we're in from that perspective. Again, you mentioned a product market fit and globalization. So, you know, the typical approach in the UK will be make something, sell it, um, get profitability in your local market, then go broader. That is just not an approach by a value-based company right so a value-based company will be their view is like how are you relevant in five years what's the world going to look like then and uh, what do you need to do to get there here's all the money in the world to make sure you build that future product and then go and take the market so it is a long-term approach and it is you know chucking money at, at the problem but also surrounding you with the right talent to actually achieve it so their view is interestingly one of trust in the sense of like if you have the right idea, we, we believe in the right thesis of where the world's going. It's then about putting the right talent around that to solve the problem and, it, and achieve it. So I always think about you know, Halo was first in terms of like e hailing of cabs mm-hmm. and so on. We took the nicey nicey approach, we'll make friends. Black cabs, you know, we'll go to New York. We'll make friends with all the yellow cabs, and we'll we'll do it in a way which is you know softly, softly. And the US approach is like, oh, this e-failing, e-hailing thing works, right? Who's the most aggressive team? Oh, these guys, Uber. Right, we're going to give them all the money, and they're going to win. And that's that's their approach to basically investing. I think for me, I always knew and always felt that the only way to win or become a global business out. UK is to be very IP and R and D focused, and that's the only way to get a lead because a US based business will always raise more money uh, than a UK one, and be able to take you out. And, you know, I was on a panel the other day with Karen Hanson, who created Top Table. It was a similar story. She created Top Table, Open Table in the US. You know, raised ten times the money, and you know, came across and said, "Look, either we're going to outcompete you, or we're going to buy you, which one?" Yeah, so she got a nice exit but there was no way she was going to be able to be long term and it, hence I've always thought Lauren D is the key, we have incredible tech institutions, we have incredible talent more often than not our product solutions are always better than the American equivalent we just don't sit in a big enough market to get scale
0: hmm. uh, early
1: enough so then you have to match you have to match basically your thesis and what you want to try and do with your investment Shareholders. So they've got to match where you're going and think about it in the same way. So I think I haven't had any sort of VC money. So I've been fortunate enough with my early angels that they were going to back me. They felt similar to me that this was a big thing and go after that. And then later I, I got a, a big strategic investor, big like clothing manufacturer out of Asia. So I would always say, go to where and find the money, the right sort of money that investor third generation family and they think absolutely long long term mm-hmm. so they've been hugely supportive of what we're trying to do you know that investor um, his PhD in medical imaging is uh, uh, one of the early contributors to Limit, so he, he understands yeah right so it's not just he's an investor thinking about his own industry long term he also understands technology and understands R&D and that side of it. So having a full appreciation for both is then supremely useful and I mm-hmm. would always think of it as like whenever you're getting an investor, it's not an investor just for the money today, this is likely to be a 5-10 year relationship, so you've got to think about whether you can last that long together <laughs> whether they un- and whether they understand that too. So
0: yeah. Uh, on that note, Tom, I won't take up any more of your time. Those are the um, single most resounding words I would like to echo and do echo across multiple episodes of this podcast. <laughs> so, uh, thank you for aligning back to to one of uh, the core themes. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and it's been a pleasure to work with you and your team as well. You've been listening to Vicky Brock, Tom Adula, this week's Entrepreneur agonyance. As ever, you can submit your problem or question at vickybrock.com slash podcast.